and turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. Carter, bring me one of those Bibles, brother. My wife is grabbing my Bible for me, but I was trying to delay. 1 John 4, we're going to read the first, uh, we're going to start with verse 7, we're going to read through verse 12. So please follow along as I read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this is love, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to help us as we go into this text this morning. Father, we do ask for your divine assistance this morning. We recognize that, uh, that while your truth has been revealed, communicated through writing to us today, that, that if we don't have spiritual eyes to see, that we won't see what we need to see. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our eyes and our hearts so that we, we might be able to receive your truth to the, today and practice this kind of love that is uh, being described here in this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you this morning on a simple theme. Love one another. Everybody say that. Love one another. What are we talking about today? Love one another. You got it? In 2006, around that year, I went through some very uh, difficult, uh, uh, very difficult season of depression. Anybody ever been depressed? And uh, so for me, when I was going through this very difficult season, I didn't want to be around anybody. I just wanted to be by myself. Um, being around people just wore me out. And uh, the problem was I was a pastor. <laughs> and so it's hard to uh, get away from people as a pastor sometimes. Um, now, this is the year 2006, and around this year, these virtual churches started springing up on the Internet. So I found a virtual church on the Internet, and I thought, hmm, I, I could pastor this church. Uh, you, you get on the website, and you kind of go through the virtual church doors, and you're greeted by a virtual greeter, a little speech bubble that pops up. Welcome. And uh, you can browse their online bookstore. There's even like a little uh, side panel on the right right side of the screen where you could chat if you want with other virtual attendees or which I did you could turn it off if you would just rather you know just you and Jesus right now like I'm just gonna 
shut down all of these voices and uh, and just gonna just gonna focus on me today. Um, and then you get your song and you got your sermon. And then they gave a benediction and they took an online offering, which of course I didn't give to. And then I closed out of the screen. And uh, I was like, wow, this is actually, this is nice, you know. Now the problem with that, (laughs) the problem with that is that the Christian life is not just me and Jesus. But it's me and Jesus and a whole bunch of other people that I am called to love. Yeah, that's the problem with that. <laughs> you can't just like in real, real time, uh, Christian community just turn off the chat panel, right? I know some of you this morning wish you could. Wish I could just mute all of these voices. It's not just you and Jesus. You see, we as human beings, we tend to be selfish, We tend to be uh, self-centered. And then as a result, we tend to separate our religious beliefs from our practice of love. I can believe and be a Christian and have my virtual experience and not really ever have to practice love. Well, here in the text, we're clearly called to love, aren't we? Look at verse 7. He begins this passage, our passage this morning, by saying, Beloved, let us love one another. Now, John uses that word beloved all through his letter. I think there's something even in that word beloved, which, which literally means the ones I love, my loved ones. There's something as John just continues to use that word beloved that's, that, 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 that speaks to us. You know, John has been saying some difficult stuff in this letter to the church, but they know that he loves them, don't they? Beloved, the ones I love. Like, I think John, as the pastor, is leading the way in what it looks like to love his congregation, and he's calling them to love. There's an old preacher from Lexington, Kentucky that I love to listen to. His, uh, he's, he's deceased. Uh, you can find his sermons online on YouTube. His name is Elder Ward. And uh, a friend of mine was mentored by Elder Ward, Kevin Smith, and, uh, and so sometimes I'll listen to an Elder Ward sermon, and I think to myself, how does he get away with saying that? Like, he goes in on his flock sometimes. <laughs> the deacons, you deacons, you need to get, get yourself together and prepare a, a word before you try to stand up here and talk. You guys don't know how to, you know. I'm thinking to myself, how does Elder Ward have a congregation? They come back week after week after week, and they grow, and they, they, they shout, and they say amen. And so what Kevin Smith told me, who was trained by Elder Ward, he said, he said, Elder Ward used to sit with his young ministers, and he would tell them, you guys can't talk to the flock like I can, because they don't know that you love them. He said, you can't talk to the flock like I can because you haven't laid in hospital beds with them. You haven't walked with them through chemotherapy. You weren't there the night that their mother died. And I think that that's what we see here with John, is that John is loving the flock. You know, there are too many young, 
uh, uh, seminary-trained ministers who kind of come out guns blazing with theology, and they have the position of pastor in a church, but they don't have the relationship of pastor in the church, and they, and they destroy churches that way. And this isn't just pastors, but this could be church members, ministry leaders, deacons, elders. Do the people that you serve, do they know that you love them? Do others in this church, do they know, yeah, Montrell loves me. Jess loves me. Daniel loves me. These people love me. Do people know that about you? So he goes on explaining to the church that they must love each other. It's a command. It's not actually an option. It's not like, hey, if you guys feel so led, love each other. If you want to, this would be one nice expression of your faith. If you have the time, the energy, you know, if you're an extrovert, of course, introverts don't worry about it. You don't like people, don't worry about it. Just get your thing and go. No, it's a command. It's not an option. Now, this is interesting to me. The Bible doesn't command non-believers to love. Why then does the Bible command believers to love? Well, the answer I'm going to give you right now is this. It's because we are of God. And that might not be enough for you, so let's take some time and unpack that. Why does being of God demand that we love each other? Well, I see three reasons here in John's text as to why being from God, of God, demands that we love each other. And the first reason is very simple. It's because love comes from God. We are commanded to love each other because love comes from God. We see that in verses 7 and 8. D.L. Moody, he, he built a church in the 1800s in Chicago. And when he built this church above the pulpit, some people in the church using gas jets, this would have been amazing uh, uh, during, during his day, using some gas jets, they, they wrote the phrase over the pulpit, God is love. And Moody said, if I can't preach it into somebody's soul, I'm going to burn it into their soul. Through these fiery letters, God is love. Well, one man, he's a skeptic. He go in, goes into Moody's church in Chicago, and he sees that, that, that phrase, God is love, and he says, God is not love. He doesn't love me. Otherwise, my life wouldn't look like this. So he sat down uh, through the service, and he listened to Moody preach. And the entire time Moody was preaching, he was reading those words, God is love. By the end of the service, he came up to Moody with tears coming down his face. And Moody said, what was it in the sermon that impacted you? And he said, it wasn't your sermon. It was those fiery letters, those words above you that says, God is love. What must I do to be saved, he asked. Moody said that the devil would love nothing more than to blot those three words out of Scripture. When we gaze upon the reality that love comes from God, things change 
in us. So we see in this text here, take a look at it with me. He says, beloved, let us love one another. And then he says, for, everybody say for. That means here's the reason we are to love each other. For love is from God. That's why. And if you love, you've been born of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. To borrow an explanation that I heard someone else use, water is wet. It just is. And we could kind of turn that a couple ways. It would not be correct to say wet is water. Because everything that is wet is not necessarily water. Well, it has some water in it, Joel. Okay, it might. But it's contaminated with other stuff. We can't call it water, right? Not everything that is love is God. Love is not God. That would be called idolatry. We don't idolize love and say, well, every expression of love I see is God. I saw God today. No, you didn't. (laughs) Don't idolize love. And there are forms and expressions of love which actually have love in it, but it's contaminated with the flesh. And so therefore, it's not a picture of God. But let's turn it the other way. Water is wet. Meaning you can't make water wetter than it is because it's wet. Water doesn't get wet. Water is wet. God doesn't fall in love. God is love. God doesn't grow in his love for you. God is love. You guys tracking with me? God is love. Theologian C.H. Dodd, he said that God creates and God rules and God judges, but God is love. Which means that all of the other things that God does are expressions of his love. So when God created the world, and when God created you and knit you together in your mother's womb, it was an expression of God's love. When God rules, that's an expression of his love. And even when God judges, that's an expression of his love. Why? It's because God is love. We can't say that about me. I make mistakes. I'm not always a perfect father. Kids, sometimes I will discipline my kids out of the wrong motive, maybe out of anger, and say something I shouldn't say or say something in the way I I shouldn't say it, and now I have to go to them and apologize. But God is the perfect father. And all of his discipline of his children is an act of his love because God is love. One theologian said that love then, therefore, as we see, we're about to see in this text, is defined as selfless devotion. Disney Disney tells you true love is a kiss. Right? Or sisters. (laughs) But true love is is selfless devotion. 
Now, if we love, so if we have true love as a believer, not love contaminated with the flesh, but true love, and that is selfless devotion, that means, uh, that pictures, that shows two things in verse 7. First, it shows that we have been born of God. Not born of the flesh, according to your old nature. This isn't the kind of birth that happened uh, on January 20th, 1981, when I was physically born into this world. No, that's corruption. That's the corrupt flesh. This is the, the spiritual rebirth. This is the rebirth of regeneration, which happens at some point in every believer's life. As the Holy Spirit indwells them, washes them, changes them, the theological word we use for that is regeneration, and he gives them a new nature. Now, with rebirth, the Holy Spirit is now uh, indwelling in us, and so the logic is fairly simple. If you have been reborn, then therefore you have the Spirit of God in you, and so therefore you are to what? Love. So if you love, it shows that you've been born of God. You guys tracking? Secondly, in verse 7, we also see that we know God. Loving shows that we know God. Meaning, if you have witnessed growth in your love for others, you have more and more of this God-given, uh, selfless devotion to other people that are around you, whether that's in your home, on your block, in your church. That is a sign that you know God. Like intimate knowledge. I know him. Not I know of him, but I know him. He is my friend. Christians, we don't look to books, philosophers, authors, or movies for our definition of love. Because love comes from God. He is the author of love in our life. So therefore, we look to God to know what love looks like. The world too often gets love all confused with feelings. So if my feelings go away then I must no longer be in love, so I am going to go away. That's the world's mentality. It says nothing about feelings in here, does it? It doesn't even say that Jesus felt like coming into the world. It just says he did. So we look to God to understand what love is because love comes from God. That's the first reason that we must love. It's because it's who we are. Now, secondly, what we see is, is, is the expression of love, the greatest, fullest expression of love that God has shown us, and that's in the next couple of verses here. And that's my second point here is that love is from God, but love comes to us. In the form of redemption. In verses 9 and 10. During the American Revolution, the Revolutionary War era, there was a pastor named Peter Miller. 
who pastored in Pennsylvania about 70 uh, miles outside of Philadelphia. Now, Peter Miller had a, uh, an enemy. His name was Michael Whitman. Michael Whitman hated Pastor Peter. He opposed everything he did. He tried to trip him up at every single point. Now, one day, Michael Whitman was arrested for high treason, taken to Philadelphia. There his life was condemned. Pastor Peter walked 70 miles all the way to Philadelphia to plead for the life of his enemy. When he got there, General George Washington looked at Pastor Peter and he says, no, I'm sorry, I cannot grant you pardon for your friend. Pastor Peter said, my friend? He's not my friend. He's the bitterest of enemies. George Washington said, he's your enemy? Well, that's a different story. And he granted his pardon. You can have him. Pastor Peter and Michael Whitman walked home 70 miles that day, not as enemies, but as friends. Well, what happened? Love came to the enemy. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his Son to us, into the world. You see, too often as humans, we love because of fill in the blank. We love someone because of something. Man, I love him because of, name it. We love people as humans because they bring some kind of added value or quality to our life. Pastor Peter loved his enemy Michael not because Michael brought any value to his life. But as a matter of fact, it was the other way around. The love of Pastor Peter brought value to his enemy's life. God doesn't love us because we are cute and cuddly. He doesn't love us because we're going to be such good soldiers for his kingdom. He doesn't love us because he knows you are talented and, man, I can use his gifts or her gifts. He doesn't love us because of fill in the blank. God loves us in spite of the fact that we are his enemies. When Jesus shows the love of God manifest among us, love made manifest, pictured, proclaimed, it's in the redemption story. It's God sending his son. Now, the text there in verse 9 says, only son. It's actually made up of two words which essentially would be one gene. Meaning there is something distinct about this son. There's something unique about this son that makes him different than all others. That is because Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, sharing all attributes with the Father, his eternality, his omniscience, his divinity. The Father sent the Son. 
into the world, into this broken world that was very happy in its rebellion against him. The Father sent the Son to his enemies. The offended came to the offender and loved. Not because of any quality that the offender had, but but rather his love gave quality and value to the offender. He doesn't send Abraham. He doesn't send Moses. He doesn't even send LeBron James. But he sent his own unique son to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. For two reasons. Look at the text. In verse 9, he says, first, so that we might live through him. So that we might have life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But he came to us so that we might have life. Be freed from the shackles of death. Be freed from the condemnation of our treason against God. And secondly, how does he do it? Well, he came to be our propitiation. Now, some of your translations might mean, mean uh, might read wrath bearer. It's a unique word. We don't use the word propitiation very often today, do we? Going to pay your speeding ticket? Yeah, I got to make propitiation for my speeding ticket here today. David Allen says that propitiation means at least six things. Propitiation speaks of God's holiness, God's wrath, God's justice, God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace. To put all of that together, this is what propitiation means. Our holiness, I'm sorry, our sin is an affront to God's holiness. And therefore, our sin incurs God's wrath. Now, because God is a just God, He can't just simply look the other way. But His justice demands payment. His justice demands judgment for sin. And so this is where we see redemption begin to take place. First, in God's mercy, as God withholds from us what we do deserve. Imagine if he gave you what you deserved. Secondly, in his love, in the expression of love here, Jesus Christ coming to die for our sins, taking on the wrath of God, being our, as some of your translations might read, our wrath bearer, bearing God's divine wrath, Judgment for our sin. And then therefore, being recipients of his grace. Giving us what we don't deserve. And that is the forgiveness of our sins. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the hope of redemption. Jesus came to be our propitiation. Love, therefore, is pictured and defined by the cross. I performed a a joy and earnest wedding yesterday. Let's give them a round of applause. They're not here, of course. Um, And 
and I was thinking as I was going through my, you know, my typical sermon that many of you have heard a hundred times at weddings. Um, I was thinking uh, about the cross of Christ and how I can't really get through a wedding without talking about the cross of Christ. Meaning, I, I don't know how to talk about love without talking about the cross of Christ. You tracking with me? Like, I don't know where to go to, to fully define what love is unless I go to the very place that God has defined it for us, and that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Love is defined as something that comes to us. The offender, offended making reconciliation. Initiating. And this is what God does. God initiates. We don't. He loves us based on his own initiation. And this is so consistent with the scriptures. God came to Paul when he was trying to destroy the church. God came to Israel through the prophets when they were trying to build altars to false gods. God came to Moses, who was on the run. He came to him through the, a burning bush and converted him. God came to a pagan named Abraham and said, through you, I'm going to do something. Even going all the way back to the beginning, God came to Adam and Eve after they sinned. They were hiding from him. They didn't come to him for reconciliation. God initiates his love. He comes to those who have offended him. I wonder how this encourages you. The God who is big enough to create the sun. The God who is beautiful enough to create the Rocky Mountains. The God who is smart enough to put all of the galaxies together. That God has come to you. That God has initiated love in your life personally. Should that, should that not encourage the most weary soul in this room, should that not strengthen you if you feel like maybe you're lonely, lost, abandoned, unloved? Thirdly, we see that God's love is perfected through us. So it comes from God. It comes to us. And this is the third reason we love is because his love is perfected through us. Now, this is not easy to do, meaning love. It's not easy. There's an old rhyme that goes, to dwell above with the saints I love, that would be glory. But to dwell below with the saints I know, that's a different story. It's easy when we think of heaven. It's right now that's the hard thing. It's, look around. It's this. This is, this is the challenge. <laughs> to our right and to our left. What is our motivation? Well, our motivation is this. Our motivation is that love, God's love, is perfected in us as we love. Look, I find verses 11 and 12 to be shocking. Let me, let me just read these two verses and see if you can pick up on what I think is shocking in these verses. Beloved, there's the word beloved again, 
If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What is shocking about those verses? Come on. Perfected. His love is perfected in us. So the simple logic here is that if we're of God, and if God has come to us in verse 11, uh, he loves then through us as we ought, uh, ought to love each other. And then verse 12, I think, contains the shocking statement that God's love is actually perfected in us. That word perfected is a word that means finished or completed. It's the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he says, it is finished. Meaning it's done, it's complete. What John is saying is that God's love is complete as we love each other. Think about this. I don't think you're seeing the big picture here. His love is not finished on the cross. His his love is not complete as he applies redemption to you personally. But his love is only finished and complete when the church loves each other. When the people of God love the people of God. That is how God's love is, is complete in this world. Through you. When God created, he didn't just simply create one person, he created two. Meaning there's something there, uh, uh, something about community, something about humans loving each other that can only there fully display the image of God. And after Adam and Eve fell, and as redemption begins, God does what? He begins to call a family, first the family of Noah, then we see the family of Abraham. Meaning God is restoring and calling to himself a community of people. And it's always through the community, not the individual. It's through the community that God's glory will be seen to the world. It's through the community that God, God's image will be fully displayed. Are you tracking with me? It's therefore through the community that we must love and therefore see his, his own love finished. Perfected, And so then when, as we get into the New Testament, we see that this community goes global. The love of God is completed as we, as the community, love each other. This is the motivation that we have. Loving is not just an, an additional thing that we could do if you feel like it. It's not just a nice part of being a Christian. It's not just a character characteristic trait that you're born with. Oh, they're such a loving person. No, love is an integral part of what it means to be the redeemed community. The way that we love each other in that way, God is put on display, His love, His nature, His glory. And we therefore finish and complete His love. We should love each other. Which means we, we should initiate love. You see what I'm saying? You say, well, I'm hurt. 
I'm alone. Nobody came to me when I was in pain. Nobody came to me when I, when I lost. I, I, you know, yeah, I'm hearing about how the church should love, but this church hasn't loved me. What is love? Love is initiating. Love is the offended going to the one who is the offender. It is God, the holy God, coming to us, the broken people. And so when somebody steps on your toe after church, you go to them. And not just to say, I'm so angry with you, you stepped on my toe and scuffed my new Under Armour shoes. No, you go to them and say, hey, let's hang out. Someone hurts you with their words. They say something that is harmful, even racist, sexist, like truly wrong sort of stuff. We don't write them off. The offended goes to the offender in love to seek reconciliation. This is why as a church we must gather together week after week after week. This is why as a church we even practice things like church discipline because it's a way to love, to go after those who have offended in love. What does it look like for us to love? One of the tools that we use in our church is our church covenant. It's just a simple document that we've put together. We didn't put it together. That we've adopted. I want to be clear with my words here. That we've adopted. That, that just simply defines these are some things that the Bible calls us to. And I want to actually, as we close today, I actually want to read our church covenant together as a way to, to show us, remind us what the Bible says love in the local church looks like. So if, you'll, if you're a member, just stay where you're seated. Everybody stay where you're seated. But if you are a member of this church, I want you to read the church covenant with me as we see it on the screen. Having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves for him and having been baptized upon our profession of faith, we renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in Christ-like love, exercise in affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully strengthen one another. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for one another. We will work to bring up any who are under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example, seek the salvation of our friends and family. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remember that we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave. So there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will faithfully continue the work of this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrine. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. I want to invite you to be part of the family of God. This is an invitation that goes out to those of you who have already committed to this church. I'm inviting you to practice that. Don't just say, I belong to a local church. Belong. Be part of the family in love for one another. Selfless devotion. Which means we need to show up. We can't love each other if we're not here. Which means we need to know each other. We need to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We need to, we need to show that love. I, I think a hug is okay. Like, I'm not a hugger, but I've learned to hug in the family of God. All right? Because we need to show affection for one another. If you're not a Christian, you have an invitation today to come to Christ and know his love and therefore know his family. I implore you to come to Christ. Turn from the ways of the world and trust in Jesus Christ. Know what it means to love and be loved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've been able to be in your word. We ask that you would help us to become uh, the, the kind of community that John describes here as we love one another. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.